It's an honor and a privilege to be here this morning. Thank you for having me. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, uh, specifically Luke chapter 14. We'll be in Luke 14. If you don't have a Bible, there's, there's some right in the chair in front of you. You can pick that up. Go to page 874, and that'll get you to Luke 14, page 874, on the, just on the Bibles in your chair. Don't do that if you don't have that one. I don't know where you'll be. Uh, but we'll be in Luke 14, and we're going to look at a story that is about a meal and takes place at a meal, because I, I figured this week, we've all got food on our minds, amen? We're already thinking about food. We probably have plans for food. You might have already bought your turkey. Uh, if not, you probably have your shopping list ready to go. Uh, maybe you have plans. Maybe you don't have plans yet, and again, you can join the church family 1130 Thursday morning for a meal here as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a week of eating and feasting. In college basketball, they call it Feast Week. I think that's an appropriate title, Feast Week. We feast on turkey and and college basketball in my life. Some of you maybe football uh, or something like that. But uh, what we're doing is we're looking back at the year 1621 when the first pilgrims celebrated a Thanksgiving feast. They had a bountiful harvest here in the New World, and they celebrated by eating for three days. Can you believe that? Three days. So I don't want to hear how we eat too much in America anymore because we don't eat for three days like they did. In 1863, President Lincoln established the national holiday Thanksgiving. And on that day, the, the fourth Thursday of November, every year we, we gather with friends and family, we eat, and, and we thank God for the blessings He's given us. Uh, what will we eat? Well, turkey, of course, mashed potatoes, gravy, stuffing, sweet potatoes, my favorite, and cranberries, which I always wonder, how did the cranberries sneak their way into our Thanksgiving meal. I only eat cranberries one day a year, and it's like I got some sort of obligation to eat them. But congratulations to the cranberries. They got their way onto the menu. Um, The turkeys will cook for an average of seven hours, an average of seven hours, and then we will spend an average of 16 minutes eating. 16 minutes, that's all we do. We went from three days to 16 minutes. I'm already hungry thinking about that. Uh, But... Then there will be leftovers and Thanksgiving leftovers. Are those good or what? One survey showed 80% of Americans like the Thanksgiving leftovers more than the Thanksgiving meal. And I'm in that 80%. Uh, We have in the Giles family, my dad's right here, we have what we call pilgrims. My dad raised me right. We eat pilgrims after Thanksgiving. And a pilgrim is where you take that dinner roll and you put everything back on it the turkey and the the potatoes and everything, and you kind of sail that guy across the table, and then you eat it. You eat the pilgrim is what we do in the Giles family. I know it sounds barbaric. That's how we are in the Giles family, just just how it goes. But as we head into this week of of feasting and and fellowshipping and, and being with friends and family, I think it's worth asking is what we're doing, though it's enjoyable, is it biblical? Is it just this kind of cultural thing we do with no biblical warrant or Or is there biblical warrant for gathering with friends and family to eat a meal? So that your Thanksgiving is not ruined, I will say yes. There's absolutely biblical warrant for what we'll do this week. There's seven feasts, seven annual feasts in the Old Testament alone. As you could say, maybe we don't feast enough nowadays. We should have seven Thanksgivings. But the Bible is is very clear that, that feasting and fellowshipping with friends and family and thanking God for what he's given us is a good and biblical thing to do. Uh, the Gospels are, are littered with meal scenes like we're going to see today. 
the Gospel of Luke has 10 meal scenes alone, one of which we'll look at today. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read verses 15 through 24, and then I'll pray and we'll really dig into the text. So uh, follow along as I read Luke 14, starting in verse 15. Luke writes, when one of those, that's one of the Pharisees, who reclined at table with Jesus, heard these things, the Pharisee said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Verse 16, Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And the third said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot attend. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. When the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. Fathers, we open your word this morning. We ask that you give us ears that we would hear, that you'd give us eyes that we would see, that the truth's contained here in your word. Lord, would you help us not to try to change your word to match who we are. Rather, Lord, would you by your spirit continue to transform us into the image of your son. In his name we pray, amen. Well, the, the passage before us this morning is, is what I call a, a simply complex passage. And by that I mean like, like most things Jesus does, it's just kind of simple on the surface. It's just a, a meal and an invitation and some people that don't come. But, but underneath it, as we dig deeper and deeper, you're going to see there's, there's a lot of complexity to what's going on here. And we're going to look at three layers, if you will. We're going to look at the feast that was forfeited, and that's the story itself. And then we're going to look at the invitation we've been given, and that's where we find ourselves in this story. And then finally, we'll look at the banquet before us, which is how the story applies to us today. So the, the feast that was forfeited, the invitation we've been given, and the banquet before us. The feast that was forfeited, the story itself, it just starts off uh, innocently enough with an invitation. Maybe some of you have received an invitation already to a, a feast this week, and, and we do things a bit differently today than they did in Jesus' day. So my parents have said, be at their house Thursday at 1 o'clock for a meal. And they will then work backwards from there. So in order to have a meal ready by 1 o'clock, they'll be up early, they'll be putting the turkey in the oven, get that seven hours working away, and then they'll start preparing the dishes, all in order to have everything ready to go at 1 o'clock Thursday for the meal. That's how we do things today. That's not how things were done in antiquity. In Jesus' day, you didn't have... Microwaves, you didn't have ovens the way we have. You couldn't just plan the day and time of the meal. So you had to kind of give a ballpark day or season even. And so you would invite people to your, your harvest banquet. You would say, once the harvest comes in, would you join me for a feast? And then depending on how many people said yes or RSVP'd, you would know how many animals to slaughter, how many dishes to make. And, and you'd kind of have to wait. You'd have to watch for the signs and times of the harvest. 
And once you saw those coming, you would know, well, I'll be summoned to the feast soon. And then the, the master would have, the host would have everything ready. And, and once the food was prepared, well, it, it had to be eaten pretty quickly. They didn't have freezers. They didn't have refrigerators. They, they couldn't have their pilgrim leftovers. You had to just get there and eat. And so once you said yes, once you RSVP'd, really you were honor-bound to attend this feast. So what happens in, in verses 18 through 20 is is not just odd, it's, it's actually very disappointing for the host. In 18 through 20, verses 18 through 20, we start to see these excuses come in. And what we're going to see is that, that all of these excuses are, are pathetic excuses at best. Uh, the more I, I dug into them, I started to think, that, I think these guys might even just be lying in some of these excuses. The first in verse 18, he says, I I must go out and see the field that I bought. I must go inspect the field. And right away, you probably look at that and go, who buys a field without inspecting it, right? And and the more I dug, I actually found historical documents of contracts, purchases of fields, and everything is listed in those contracts because the field is like a business. They're going to grow crops on this field or, or raise cattle or, or shepherd flocks of sheep. You've got to know everything about this field. And, and by Roman law, you would, you would write out the, what grows on the field and what doesn't grow. You would write out the profits over the last generations. You would write out who's owned the field and what they did with the field, what it, when it's been rested, when it's been put to work. All these things would be listed. And so to say something like, I just bought a field and now I'm going to go out and inspect it is... is Pathetic at best. It's, it's, it's odd. It's suspicious, isn't it? If someone, someone told me, hey, good news, I just bought a business, I would assume they've looked at the business first. I mean, if someone said, I just bought, I just bought Blockbuster Video, can you believe it? I would say, oh, oh, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> you probably should have looked at that first. Because we just naturally know you don't buy a business without inspecting it first. The second excuse in verse 19, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Uh, You could think put them to a test or or prove them, test drive them, so to speak, right? Five yoke of oxen is a lot of oxen. A, A large farm would need one to two yoke of oxen. So we're talking about a significant investment. A significant investment with, with no test drive. And, and we can look at, at purchases of oxen from antiquity as well. There would be a marketplace and a field set up next to the marketplace so you could examine the oxen. And if you didn't have that, you would probably go to the seller's house and watch him plow his field. So again, we've got a, a lame excuse at best. And then we get to verse 20. I have married a wife, therefore I cannot attend. And I love this verse because I'm looking at every husband in the room, holding it back, just trying not to smile, and every wife just ready to dig that elbow in and say, I dare you to smile about this excuse. Uh, it sounds bad, throwing his wife under the bus. Uh, he, what he might be doing, he might be trying to use Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 verse 5 says that, that when a man is newly married, he has one year, he doesn't have to participate in war or any other public duty. So maybe, maybe he's invoking this. 
But if he is, he's telling the host, I consider your feast to be a public duty. Which is a bit disappointing. You probably hope people coming to your house for Thanksgiving don't consider you a public duty. But that's what he's communicating. And so we see that that all three excuses, though they, they vary, they have this in common. And that is that something else is more important than attending the feast they've been invited to. Something else is far more important than attending the feast they've been invited to. And, and we also notice that the excuses, they escalate in rudeness. I don't know if you caught that. In verse 18, he says, I must go to see the field. I have to go do it. Please excuse me, is in there. And then in verse 19, I'm on my way. He doesn't mention any need of necessity, just I'm on my way. But he still puts the, please excuse me. And then in verse 20, He's not even going anywhere. He doesn't have to go anywhere, and he doesn't ask to be excused. And so Luke wants you to see this this building rudeness coming through in the excuses. For the host, this would be disappointing, uh, wasteful. You can't just preserve this food. It's going to spoil. This would be shameful. And in a culture that's, that's bound in honor and shame, it would be very shameful for the host. And his response in verse 21, I think, is appropriate, to be angry. In fact, I was able to find Middle Eastern documents from, from like 1, 2, 300 B.C. where tribal wars were started because of this sort of event. Someone RSVP'd and animals were slaughtered and everything was prepared. And then people gave excuses and didn't show up and wars were started. Vengeance is what's in store here. I think if we pause and, and ask ourselves, what would we do in this situation? I, I think we'd probably, we'd probably be angry too. I know I would. Disappointed at best, but probably angry. I mean, if you're planning Thanksgiving and if you've got everything ready to go and, and you say be here at 1 o'clock Thursday and, and you put the time and you're up early and you're making the food and you've got the dishes ready and, and nobody shows up, you'd, you'd probably be concerned. I would be concerned at first. We live in Southern California. There's traffic. There's accidents. I think it's supposed to rain this week on Thanksgiving. Just make it worse. Leave early. But I would probably call that first person and say, is everything okay? Because I'd be concerned. And if their response was, you won't believe what happened last night. I was shopping the Black Friday ads. They had a business for sale. I bought a business. I have no idea what they make or, or what the profits are like. I'm going to take today and look at that. I, I would think I have a weird friend perhaps an unintelligent friend, and, and uh, I'm disappointed in that friend. And so if I called my next friend and said, hey, are, are you going to be here because it's after one now and nobody's here? Is there traffic? Is there an accident? And they said, craziest thing, I bought 10 used cars on OfferUp last night. I don't know what was going on. I was up late. I just kept clicking just one car after another, 10 cars, haven't looked at them, haven't test-driven them. I'm going to have to go do that today. I would think I have made bad choices in friends. or they're, they're bad friends or they're all lying to me. If I called that third friend and they, and they told me I won't be there, Disney Plus just came out, Mandalorian's incredible, Jack Ryan's on Amazon Prime, I'm going to go Little Caesars and binge watch TV today, won't be there, click, and they just hung up, I would be, I'd really be rethinking my choice in friends. I'd be angry. I think you'd be angry too. I'd, I'd look at all the food that was prepared 
I'd look at my tired spouse and I'd be angry. Vengeance would be on my mind. Grace would be the furthest thing from my mind. I probably wouldn't respond the way that this host responds. Because what what the host does in verse 21 is very odd. Even though he's angry, he doesn't respond in vengeance. What he does is he says to his servant, go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So he's not just going to let this food go to waste. What he's going to do is he's going to go get the, the outcasts of society, if you will. In our day and age, this might be like, like going down to Grand Avenue and getting the homeless people. The people that we don't really want to see, we, we I don't want to be seen with, but we certainly probably don't want to have in our home. This would be going even further down into San Diego and just just filling up that 15-passenger van full of homeless and bringing them to our home. If someone told me they did that with their Thanksgiving, I would be surprised. It's commendable. It's not my first thought. It's probably not your first thought. And that's somewhat natural. My first thought would be, well, disappointed, more leftovers for me. But this would be the furthest thing from my mind. But as odd as that response is, the second response is shocking. In verses 22 through 23, what we see is that the servant has somewhat presupposed that this would be the master's response. And so he says, what you commanded, it it has been done. I've gone to the lanes and the streets and I've, I've gotten the, the outcasts and I've brought them in and, and there's still room. And the shocking response is that he then says, go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Now, there's something we have to do here. We have to, to look at their context because highways and hedges are, are border markers. Those are boundaries of safety. Highways and hedges are what separates our people from those people, if you will. And, and I don't mean it in a, in a sense of making you feel guilty, but in a sense of safety. To leave the highways, to go over the hedges, is to leave the safety of the kingdom and go to where enemies reside. It's a dangerous thing to do. If someone were to tell me that this is how their Thanksgiving went, that, that people didn't show up, and so they, they went and they gathered homeless and brought them into their home, I, I would be surprised. I, I would feel guilty because that wouldn't have been my first thought. If they were to tell me they still had room, so they chartered a plane out of one of our enemy's countries and flew people into their home, I, I would not just be shocked. I would be concerned for them. There really are bad people that want to harm us in other places that that it would be dangerous to bring into our homes. And yet this is what Jesus says the host of this feast does. If you told me this is how your Thanksgiving went, I would wonder about your sanity. I would be concerned for your safety. I would really start wondering... Why would you do such a thing? What would compel you to do such a a thing? Why would anybody do something like this? And that's the response that Jesus is after here. He wants us asking 
that question. Would anyone ever do not just a surprising, but a shocking and dangerous thing like this? And of course, we we come to find out as we read Scripture more and more that, that only God could or would ever do such a thing. You see, Jesus tells the story of the the feast that was forfeited in order to begin to point out the reality of the invitation we've been given. He wants us to start asking, if something like this has been done, if God's doing something like this, then then where are we in the story? Because immediately the, the initial audience, just like we are today, are starting to realize this isn't entirely fictional, is it? There's some truths being proclaimed here. And and we're somewhere in this story. First question then is, are we in this first group? Are we in this group of original invitees? And we find out that the answer is no. This is not us at all. This is the the leaders of the house of Israel, if you will. The, The Pharisees that are ironically sitting at the meal with Jesus himself. You see, the Pharisees, they, they, had, they had great knowledge of the Old Testament, and they knew that, that a Messiah was coming. They could read places like Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, that tell us that, that a Messiah will come, and that he will establish his kingdom here on earth, and that when he does, he will sit down at a meal and feast with people. In fact, that's what happened in verse 15 is is Jesus has done some things to to proclaim in a way that he's the Messiah. And so the response in verse 15 from the guy is is future tense. Blessed is everyone who who will eat in the kingdom of God. And, And tragically, he's sitting at the feet of the Messiah, eating in the kingdom of God and completely missing the invitation that he's been given. Pharisees are that that first group of people, and and like the excuses we saw in verses 18 through 20, although they're right there, something else is more important to them than the invitation they've been given. And so in a very disastrous way, we see them forfeiting the meal that had been set before them. And, And thankfully, we're not that first group, really. Then the question becomes, well, are we the second group? Are we the outcasts of society? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and, and the lame. And the answer is that we are, we are not in this group either. These are the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, if you will. The recipients of so many of Jesus' miracles. The, the people that, that he kept going to that, that, that loved him, but kind of got that first group a little riled up, didn't it? These are the people that everywhere Jesus went got to experience the kingdom of God that they never thought they would get to experience. In fact, in in Matthew 11, we see John the Baptist having kind of a a crisis of faith. And he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect somebody else? And and how does Jesus answer? He says, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, the, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The outcasts of society are taking their seats at the table. And that's the answer to John. It's happening. The lost sheep of the house of Israel, the ones from the alleys and the streets and the lanes, are being gathered around the Messiah. And so we find out we're, we're not in that second group of people. We're not in that first group of people. Obviously, process of elimina- elimination. 
we're this third group of people, aren't we? And in this third group of people, what we find is we, have a, we find a people who, who have no reason to expect an invitation. People born on the wrong side of the highways and the hedges, people born into enemy territory, as it were. People born Gentiles, not of the house of Israel. I don't know about you, I'm not born to an Israeli family. Pastor Dave was just in Israel. He saw people literally born into the nation of Israel. That's not me. That's probably not most of you. We're, we're born into the, the wrong nation, so to speak. But not just that. We're, we're born into sin. As we saw in the catechism, really, we're born into sin because of the, the race of Adam that we're born into. We're, we're not just born into sin, but we are perpetuators of sin. We are alienated from God. We are, as Scripture says, enemies of God. Born on the wrong side of the highways and hedges. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. While we were still enemies, while we are still on the wrong side of those hedges, Christ goes across the hedges into enemy territory and starts gathering us to his table. It's, it's a bit shocking if you really sit and think about it. As shocking as it would be to think of someone bringing people who are enemies of our country to their house, that's how shocking this story is. Not just to the original audience, but really to us. There's a, an amazing Greco-Roman comedy called Atenarius. It's from the first century A.D. It's about a story like this. And it's a comedy. Because who would ever do such a thing, really? And in this comedy, you have all these people born on the wrong side of the hedges that, that get invited into an enemy kingdom to dine with a great king. And they're suspicious of the invitation. It's too good to be true. What's he at here? He, he can't really be bringing us in to honor us. He, he must be trying to put us in his debt, or, or he must be, be just pretending this. There's no way this could be true. And the Romans saw something like this as a comedy. Because grace like this is rare. Invitations like this, they're just rare. They're unheard of. And Christianity is a rare sort of thing indeed, isn't it? Grace, like we know, is a rare sort of grace indeed. The, the good news of Christianity is that God determined long ago his table would be filled. It would absolutely be filled. And even though people weren't accepting that original invitation, God didn't stop there. And, and what he knew is that we could never make it to the table on our own, so to speak, could we? We would never be able to, to climb over the hedges and cross those highways and, and then get out of the alleys and, and out of those outcasts and into the circles of the elite. He knew we'd never be able to do that on our own, and yet he had determined that his house would be filled. And so he sent his son into enemy territory to go to those people who had a chair at the king's table with their name on it, and he sent him to die for every single one of those enemies so that they could be sat at the Father's table. 
And so now we, we turn to the banquet before us. And we see that there's, there's a twofold aspect to this banquet before us. First, we see that, that we have Christ himself. Don't ever miss that he says, he is the bread come down from heaven. Don't miss the fact that when we take communion in a bit, we will, we will take bread. Bread that's being eaten in the kingdom. And we will, we will take that bread remembering the body that was given for us. Jesus says he is the bread come down from heaven. He is the way by which we are brought to the Father's table. And so every time we, we approach communion, every, every week we remember that, that the bread we break is his body given for us. But Christianity doesn't just stop there, does it? It doesn't just end with communion. It's not just a memorial where we look backwards. But it's a forward-looking hope to a heavenly banquet as well. And Christianity is the assurance that, that not only have we been offered a seat at the table, but, but there is a seat with our name on it, and we will be sat at that heavenly banquet. We get glimpses of it in Scripture. I wish we got more than just the glimpses we, we get, but we get some. In Matthew 8, Jesus tells the disciples that they will be sat with him at the banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and peoples from the north and the south and the east and the west. All those peoples brought in over the hedges through the alleys and sat at the king's table. In Revelation 19, we see the the wedding supper of the land where people from every tribe and tongue and nation are sat at the heavenly celebration when the kingdom is in its fullness the new heavens and the new earth. So if you're, if you're here today and, and, and you're not a Christian, if you haven't, haven't believed in your heart and professed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that, that he is the one who came across the hedges to get you, then, then I, would, I would encourage you, talk to, talk to me, talk to anybody you, you saw up here earlier, write on the sheet in the chair in front of you, just write, I'd like to learn more about this. this maybe, you're, maybe you're like the Greco-Roman comedy and you're thinking, this is too good to be true. This is crazy stuff. We'd love to tell you more about it. Write on that card or see myself or any of the elders or deacons and, and just say, I'd like to learn more about this because here's what I don't want. I don't want your Thanksgiving meal, no matter how good it is this week, I don't want that to be the best feast you ever eat. And that's the reality of the world we live in. Verse 24 is is very much real. That there does come a time when the doors to the banquet hall close. And those who have not accepted that invitation will not be at the Father's table. And and if that's you today, I, I don't want that for you. I don't want Thanksgiving to be the best feast you ever eat. It truly is as simple as accepting the invitation you've been given. If you're here today and and you are a Christian, I would say celebrate Thanksgiving. Eat your heart out. Have fun. Laugh. Enjoy the food that God's provided. Thank God for the blessings we have. Thank Him for, for the country we live in where we can do this. We can gather and freely proclaim the good news of the gospel. Thank God for the, the blessings we have, the blessings we've been given this year. But, but above all, thank Him for who we are in Christ Jesus. 
thank him for the fact that there is a literal seat at a literal table in the new heavens and the new earth with, with your name on it and my name on it. Thank him for that. Celebrate Thanksgiving, but don't stop there. Call others to this heavenly feast. Play the part of the servant now and go anywhere God sends you. It, it might be right here in Valley Center. It might be in Escondido. It might be in San Diego. We don't know where God will call you. But wherever he calls you, play the role of the servant. Invite others to this heavenly feast. Let's pray. Father, we truly are thankful today. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us uh, even the simple things like a, a week to pause and to look back at, at all you've blessed us with and to thank you for those things. We thank you, Lord, for the friends and, and family that we have and, and the food that we will eat this week. We, we look forward to our Thanksgiving meals, Lord. We thank you that you have put us here in this country where we have such great freedoms and such great privileges and so many blessings. Above all, Lord, we thank you for who we are in Christ Jesus. We thank you that no matter what happens here on this earth or this week or this day, we thank you that we have a heavenly hope before us, that you have secured a seat for us at your table through Christ Jesus. We thank you and praise you in his name and for his sake. Amen.